Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology podcast. I'm Patricia Lobo and today we are talking about a cohort study on the risk stratification of patients with Barrett's esophagus using a non-endoscopic device with a biomarker panel published online on 10th of November. I'm pleased to be joined by Rebecca Fitzgerald, one of the authors of this study, Welcome, Rebecca. Could you give us your affiliation, please? I'm Rebecca Fitzgerald. I'm from the MRC Cancer Unit at the University of Cambridge. This is a study on the performance of a non-invasive tool to categorise patients with known Barrett's esophagus into a low-risk group where endoscopy could be spared. Could you please tell us a little bit more about this? So Barrett's esophagus is important because it carries a risk of developing cancer of the esophagus. And cancer of the esophagus is a very severe disease um, with a high mortality. So the overall survival for cancer of the esophagus is 13% at five years. And the patients in whom we try to to cure their disease have to go through quite a a, a, a difficult lot of treatment involving chemotherapy, often combined with radiotherapy, followed by surgery to remove their esophagus and esophagectomy. So obviously, um, with all that in mind, it's important to try and detect the disease early because then we can spare patients a lot of invasive treatment and the outcomes are much better. But the other side of the coin is that most people with Barrett's won't develop cancer of the esophagus. So what we need to do is to come up with a method of monitoring patients as best, you know, as, best as we can to try and prevent development of a very invasive, severe cancer of the esophagus, but at the same time not putting through patients through unnecessary procedures when their individual risk might be quite low. And the way that we currently monitor patients with Barrett's is with endoscopy and multiple biopsies. Endoscopy is quite straightforward, but still it's an invasive procedure which has small risks associated. And these patients undergo a lot of endoscopy procedures, so we repeat the procedure Depending on the particular findings of the pathology, they'll have repeat endoscopies, usually every two to three years, but then if the cells start changing more frequently than that. So these patients can have a lot of procedures over their lifetime, which can be quite anxiety-making. And furthermore, endoscopy isn't a perfect test, and the biopsies are prone to some sampling bias. So so what we've been trying to do is to come up with a, a, a different way of doing this, something that could be much less invasive for the patient, simpler, that could avoid them coming to hospital and just have the test in the GP setting. And coupled with that, um, we want to make the test as good as we can um, and avoid some of the issues we currently have with the sampling bias that you get with biopsies and the pathologist's rather subjective grading of dysplasia. So that's where the idea has come from to to combine two aspects in this new test, which is a, a cytosponge biomarker test. So so the cytosponge is, is a very simple patient, a very simple procedure from the patient's point of view that can be done in the GP surgery. And then that's combined with, with biomarkers. So the patient just comes and swallows a, a pill on a string. The pill went, travels down to the stomach just over a few seconds. We wait for up to five minutes for the capsule to dissolve and out pops the sponge, which is, is a sort of spherical, slightly abrasive sponge, which can then be pulled back and collects a lot of cells on its passage. So the whole procedure takes just over five minutes, so really simple to do. Can you tell us a bit more about this novel non-endoscopic device and how through the use of biomarkers you built a prognostic model? So, um, I mean, the device um, is a cell collection device, and as I've just explained, it's really quite simple for the patient to use. And we've published already quite a, a, a lot on how you can detect Barrett's from the cells withdrawn with this device using a biomarker 
that we developed called Trefoil Factor 3. So that detects intestinal metaplasia, which is really the hallmark of, of Barrett's, which has the pre-malignant potential. But obviously, just diagnosing Barrett's isn't enough. As I've explained, we want to know who the patients are at greatest risk of progression. And that's what this paper is all about. So what we've done in this paper is we've taken patients who have got Barrett, so they've had a cytosponge, and we know that they are TFF3 positive, so, so they have Barrett's. And then we asked whether using the same cell sample, we could apply further biomarkers in combination to detect whether they were at low risk and could be spared endoscopy or higher risk for cancer and therefore should have endoscopy and potentially treatment. So we've, we've, in the study, we've applied several biomarkers. So there was a, a discovery phase and, and then a validation phase to come up with the, with the most sensitive and specific panel that we could. And, and the way we picked the biomarkers was based on our knowledge from the literature and our own work about things which really are hallmarks of cancer risk in this condition. So P53 is the tumor suppressor gene which carries the highest risk of developing cancer. It's the most recurrently mutated cancer gene in this disease. And we looked at P53 in two ways, by immunohistochemistry and by sequencing. We also looked at um, CMYK, the oncogene, Aurora kinase A, as a um, marker of abnormal DNA copies, a ploidy marker, if you will. We looked at two methylation markers, MyoD1 and RUNCSEC3, which in the literature have been associated with an increased risk of cancer. And pathologists' view of the atypia, because pathologists are very expert at even though subject subjectivity, we, we wanted to also assess atypia as part of the model from the pathologist's assessment. And then we included clinical factors as well, because of course we don't want to ignore what we know about the patient already, so um, their age, their obesity index, if you will, using BMI or weight tip ratio, and how long the Barrett's esophagus is. So we looked at all those markers and then came up with which were the most sensitive and specific, and we ended up with three markers in the panel, P53, Aurora kinase A for copy number, and the pathologist's estimate of atypia. Um, along with some clinical factors. And we tried to keep it as really as simple as we could, but obviously to get the best performance. And what this panel does really, really well with almost 100% accuracy on the validation is to tell us which patients are at extremely low risk. So this was basically 100% accurate in the discovery and um, all but one classified correctly in the validation. So it's a really robust way of telling us that which patients are very low risk and don't need an endoscopy and a cytosponge would just be sufficient. So we would envisage those patients would carry on cytosponge monitoring until their status changed. This method has the advantage of eliminating those individuals that do not require surveillance or therapy. What type of implications will this have for clinical practice? So I think this could have several advantages, both from the patient's point of view and from the health service point of view. So, you know, patients do find endoscopy monitoring for Barrett's quite anxiety-provoking. Studies have shown that. And, it, it, you know, it's time-consuming. They have to take the day off work. Um, and, and endoscopy isn't a perfect test because of the sampling bias. With the cytosponge, you get a much, you know, a more comprehensive sweep of cell collection along the esophagus. So, um, so I think for the patient, it would be more convenient. They can go to the GP surgery. In the study, of course, we've had to compare it to the gold standard of endoscopy. Uh, endoscopy isn't perfect either and we actually think that this, this panel may be in the long run better than endoscopy because as I say we don't have sampling bias and the biomarkers are more objective. And from the health service point of view, this is a GP based test, it's very simple to do, it should be very cost effective to implement and you know, our endoscopy units are very 
very busy and overburdened with a lot of work, especially from colon cancer screening, for example. Um, and Barrett's surveillance is a quite time-consuming procedure because of all the biopsies that have to be taken from the endoscopist point of view. So I think from the, both the patient and the health service point of view, it has real advantages to reduce the number of people with Barrett's that need you know, hospital-based endoscopy surveillance. And then we can really focus on those that are at high risk and, and potentially need treatment. Were the biomarkers used in this study able to singularly discriminate to predict risk groups? Yes, to some extent they were. Um, I mean, we've in the end come up with a combination. We kept it to the smallest combination possible to make it as practical as possible. But the individual biomarkers, even on themselves, were, were useful. So Aurora kinase A, which measures DNA copy number or ploidy, was the most sensitive biomarker. So on its own, its sensitivity was 78%. That was for detecting high-grade dysplasia or intramucosal cancer compared to no dysplasia. P53 was the most specific biomarker, 96% specific. And the atypia by the pathologist is also highly, highly specific with a specificity of 94%. So no single biomarker, though, was, had the, a high enough sensitivity and specificity um, to really be good enough on its own. So that's why we've come up with the combination. But the combination is quite straightforward. It involves immunohistochemistry for two markers, Aurora kinase A and P53, and a P53 sequence using a customized kit just for that single gene. Um, and we've added on the clinical factors, which if you know them, do improve the performance slightly. So the age of the patient, BMI always tip ratio either could be used. And if you know the length of the barrett, you can put that in. And we've done it so you could just it's online as part of the paper. You can just put the numbers into a Excel calculator and it will tell you which risk group the patient is in. So you simply, for the biomarkers, you just put whether it's high risk or low risk, whether they're positive or negative, and then you just put the, the BMI number in, the age, the length of the Barrett, and it will tell you um, the risk. So as simple as we can make it, but it is a combination. Can this study be applied to individuals that were discovered as a screening population without known Barrett's esophagus? Yes, absolutely. So um, the good thing about this is you can use the same cytosponge sponge that was used for the diagnostic procedure to look for TFF3 for these other biomarkers. You don't need to do the cytosponge sponge again. So uh, we envisage that you know, you'd do the TFF3 as the first stage, and then if, you, if that turns out positive, then you would do the second round and that's, it. that's in the screening setting. Obviously, if you knew the patient had Barrett's, you wouldn't have to do the TFF3 necessarily. You could just go on and do the risk stratification. But yes, absolutely, it could be done as a, as a second-tier test as part of screening. Finally, why do you think that esophageal adenocarcinoma incidence has been increasing in Western countries? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the, the increase in incidence has been quite striking, um, sort of six-fold increase in the last 30 years or so. It may be levelling off. We're not quite sure. Um, and then, of course, in eastern countries, they're starting to see it more, too. The rapid increase in incidence suggests this is something about our lifestyle or environment. Um, we know that this is associated with acid and bile reflux, commonly uh, felt as heartburn symptoms, although some patients don't, don't feel the, the reflux. We know it's also more common in patients who are obese, more common in men than, than women, but, of course, that wouldn't <laughs> explain the increase. But So those are some of the risk factors. So, I mean, I guess diet and obesity is something that's certainly been changing. The other things are all more speculative that have been looked at in the literature and include changes in microbiome, for example, changes in H. pylori. So H. pylori is the bacteria colonizing the stomach of many people. It's known to be associated with gastric cancer. 
And that's been, um, the, the incidence of that has been getting lower. We've been treating H. pyloric, easily treated with antibiotics, and the 